0: Amen. Well, let's uh, turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. Our text this morning is the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined, but new wine must be put into new wineskins well as we've seen before the coming of Christ into our world introduced a radical spiritual revolution into the course of this world and that revolution is seen here producing sparks of uh, sparks of a conflict and of tension between the Lord Jesus Christ and the religious authorities of the day. We are in the midst of a section of the Gospel of Mark that outlines for us five polemical encounters between Jesus and the Pharisees and their scribes, these religious authorities. And In these five encounters, every single one is structured first by a controversy that's presented. There's a question that's put to the Lord with the attempt to baffle him or to confound him or to entrap him in his words. And then there is this all-wise response by the Lord Jesus Christ, by which he silences the mouths of his critics and causes all to be amazed at the wisdom with which he speaks. And I'll remind you that these five encounters here culminate in chapter 3 and verse 6. What it says, the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. They sought to kill him. They were gnashing their teeth and choking upon his teaching. And so it's interesting how our gospel writer organizes the narrative in this case. Remember we said before that the gospel of Mark is not strictly chronological. In fact, none of the four gospel accounts are. They are relatively chronological. There there is a chronological order to them leading up to the event, to the cross and the resurrection. But there are other concerns that the gospel writers have in view. And we see that here in chapter 2 going into chapter 3 as Mark organizes these five polemical encounters thematically he puts one right after another in order to emphasize Jesus's conflict with the authorities and you see what Jesus is doing is introducing by this spiritual revolution he's introducing the messianic age he is inaugurating his kingdom he is shaking the kingdom of man and he is establishing his Gracious, redemptive reign. And so notice in the first place in this text that we have a complaint for conformity. A complaint for conformity. Verse 18, the disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. What is here presented as a question is really a complaint. It's a complaint. It's a protest against the practice of Jesus, who had no concern to observe the traditions of Judaism with respect to their mandatory fasts. It was unthinkable for these religious authorities, for a rabbi, To break with their uniform practice, to disregard what they deemed to be essential spiritual disciplines. Jesus' conduct offended not only the Pharisees, but in this case, even the disciples of John the Baptist were taken back by him. Well, in the previous passage leading up to our text, we saw that Jesus was feasting in the house of Levi Matthew. And it's not certain, but it is possible that he did this precisely on one of the days that the Pharisees had designated as a fasting day. Either way, it's evident that Jesus was publicly eating on days when the strict adherents of Judaism were fasting. But you know, all their scruples with Jesus were not, in fact, motivated by zeal for the true teaching of the law of God. They were rather motivated by wicked contempt toward him. They despised him. They were seeking any reason to accuse him and discredit him publicly. The light of Christ's goodness, the light of his love, the light of his holiness, emanated from his person, emanated from his acts and his works and his miracles and his gestures and his words and his teachings and exposed their bigotry, their pride, their self-righteousness and the malice of their hearts. And they were offended because his benevolent conduct exposed by way of contrast the evil of their ways. Instead of responding to his message with faith and repentance, they devised an endless array of crafty word traps so that they can indict him for some, for any slip of the tongue. And they resorted to verbally assaulting him with all kinds of classical ad hominem fallacies. Trying to undermine his message by discrediting him as the messenger. They saw his teaching, this spiritual revolution that he came to introduce as a threat to everything they held dear. And they were right. Matthew eleven eighteen 18 and 19, Jesus said for John, that's John the Baptist, came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a, a, a glutton and a winebibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But he said, but wisdom is justified by her children. His kind-hearted hospitality toward this group of social outcasts, these categorical sinners of the day, these tax collectors and their henchmen, these thugs, these prostitutes. His kind-hearted hospitality toward them, his reflection of the character of the God of love and truth and grace was drawing these sinners To faith and discipleship. Wisdom is justified by her children. Yet her passage is remarkable in that here we see the disciples of John the Baptist teaming up with the Pharisees in a bid to fault find with Jesus. The disciples of John. The disciples of John, in fact, are a key player in this event in the parallel text in the Gospel of Luke. Luke only mentions the disciples of John. It would appear that they're the ones that took initiative in raising this implicit accusation against the Lord. But here, what the Lord goes on to say about the new cloth and the wineskins, That was especially pertinent to the disciples of John the Baptist because they were trying to fit that new message of the prophet John who was announcing that Messiah was coming with his kingdom. They were trying to fit that message about the dawn of the Messianic age into the old structures of Second Temple Judaism. Old wineskins, old cloths. And so when the disciples of John raise this question, they're immediately suspect. John, of course, was a true prophet. He preached the truth. He preached the gospel. He preached faith and repentance. He preached Christ. He preached the way of salvation. And all of Judea and the surrounding regions went out to John to hear him preach. And a great number of them, you don't know how many, but a great number of them became disciples of John the Baptist. And no doubt many of them were true believers. But at this point in the narrative, you remember, Mark 1.14 indicates that John was in prison. John was already in prison. John had already previously pointed out as well, That Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. That's John 1.29. John had already said in the presence of his disciples that he saw the Spirit descending on Jesus to mark him out as the Anointed One, as the Messiah. And he further said in the gospel of John 1, 32 to 34, that he felt himself unworthy to even be the slave of Jesus. And John clearly said in verse 40 of John chapter 1, I have seen and testified that this is the son of God. Verse 34, all the way down to 40. And then we read that Andrew, who was now in the company of Jesus and who would be named one of the 12 apostles was originally a disciple of John the Baptist and when John was pointing at Jesus and self-deprecating to exalt Jesus Christ Andrew departed from John the Baptist and literally started to follow Christ followed him around he said rabbi where are you going where are you staying Where, where do you live Jesus said, come and see. And from that point on, Andrew followed him. But why didn't the disciples of John that we read about in our text follow Christ? Why were they still identified with John and not Jesus? Well, evidently, they had doubts about Jesus. They had their doubts. They failed to believe. They were hung up on their Doubts. And apparently, and this is the quite alarming part of the story before us, they felt themselves having more affinity with the company of the Pharisees than with Jesus and the ragtag band of social outcasts that he surrounded himself with. It's easy to see how this would happen. John came preaching a baptism of repentance. John was known for his austerity. And spirit-enabled, spirit-led, divinely-influenced asceticism. He lived a strict life of continual fasting and of living in the wilderness. And these disciples of his responded to his message and it no doubt had a profound influence on them. And so naturally, as they sought to reform their lives, and cast off their sins, and strive after the piety that John preached and practiced, they would become more religious. They would adhere more strictly to the tenets of what they considered to be true religion. And the religion of the world in which they were steeped was, again, that of Second Temple Judaism. The Pharisees, were the paragons. They were the teachers. They were the guardians of this brand of religion. In fact, out of all the groups of the day, the Pharisees were the most devout. They were the most serious-minded. They were the most theologically astute. And they were the ones giving the readings and expositions of scripture in the synagogues every Sabbath. They were the teachers of Israel. Pharisees. Phariseeism was highly esteemed in that day. We kind of throw that word around as an insult or a derogatory, right? That's not how they viewed Pharisees. They had very high, the common people of Israel had high esteem for this group known as the Pharisees. That's why it's so radical and revolutionary how Christ is always conflicting with them. Josephus describes the influence of the doctrine and devotion of the Pharisees in the first century work that he wrote called his Antiquities, the Antiquities of the Jews. Josephus said, they're able greatly to persuade the body of the people and whatsoever they do about divine worship, prayers, and sacrifices, they, the people, perform them according to their direction insomuch that the cities gave great attestations to them on account of their entire virtuous conduct, both in the actions of their lives and their discourses also. And so they were esteemed to be extremely pious, reputable. Jesus said in Matthew 23, verses 2 to 3, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. Now, what's he referring to when he says they sit in Moses' seat? Well, back in the early part of the 20th century, I think in 1926 or 27, an excavator was digging in Israel and they uncovered a stone. Seat, And it had words in Aramaic inscribed on that seat, and it was found in the vicinity of the synagogue in Chorazin, where Jesus actually preached. I went there some time ago, and I saw an identical replica of that seat that they discovered, the the original one, uh, that was found is now in a museum to protect it. But they made an identical replica, which still looks 2,000 years old. And they have it set up in the synagogue. And a dear pastor friend of mine actually had the nerve to sit in that seat, and I took a picture of him. <laughs> but that's what they called Moses' seat. It was located on the wall in the synagogue that would be facing Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And synagogues weren't like most churches are set up. Most churches are set up so that everybody's back is facing the entrance and the exit. The synagogues were set up the opposite way. The entryway would be facing Jerusalem and the entire congregation would be facing that entry and exit way in order to be pointed toward Jerusalem. The seat of Moses would be there. Rabbis wouldn't stand to teach and preach. They would sit Teach and preach. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount it begins by saying Jesus sat and his disciples gathered around him and then he opened up his mouth and taught. Moses' seat was the official teaching office and responsibility in ancient Israel. And the Lord Jesus even acknowledges the right and prerogative of this band, this group of Pharisees, to assume the seat of Moses and to teach. Do as they say. Much of their doctrine was true. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in the spiritual realm. They believed in angels and spirits. They believed in life everlasting. They gave at least lip service to the grace of God in salvation, although they contradicted it with really their theology and the way it worked out. Do as they say, though, and not as they do, he says. But what did they do? What was it that was so grievous about their practice? Well, Jesus explains in the following verses in Matthew 23. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do, he says, to be seen by men. One scholar explains, believing that Torah was prescriptive for all of life, the Pharisees wove an increasingly intricate web of regulations around it, whose purpose may have been motivated by the desire to honor Torah, but whose effect was a confining and even crushing burden on human existence. Well, that's exactly what they did with their fasting. They bound the consciences of others with social pressure to fast, and they even made ostentatious displays of their fasting in public. The Old Testament, the Torah, yes, Moses himself, did command fasting, but only once a year, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But according to the ancient rabbinical tractate from the Mishnah known as the Ta'anit, Instructions about Fasting, ancient Juda- Judaism codified three additional kinds of fasting. In fact, what the Mishnah teaches about fasting there uh, pretty closely aligns to what the teaching of the, or the consensus of the entire Old Testament is. It said that one type of fast was to lament national tragedies. Another was for times of crises, such as war, drought, plague, and famine. And the third kind of fast was a personal, self-imposed fast. The Pharisees themselves typically fasted from dawn till dusk every Monday and Thursday. Listen, Jesus' parable in Luke 18, the Pharisee boasted over against the tax collector, saying, I fast twice a week. Well, the Lord exposed the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in the Sermon on the Mount when he spoke about the proper approach to prayer and to almsgiving and to fasting. In fact, those three things were known among the ancient rabbis as the three pillars of Judaism. They call them the three pillars. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew six sixteen to 18. This is instruction for us. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Well, the rabbis often referred to fasting as an affliction of the soul, thereby designating it as a sacrificial act of piety. They made much of their affliction and misery in public in order to evoke praise and admiration from others. Look at how spiritual they are. Look at how holy they are. Look at how gloomy and austere they are. Look how much misery they voluntarily put themselves through because they love God. So much. Kent Hughes explained that the Pharisees actually whitened their faces, put ashes on their heads. Sounds kind of familiar. Ashes on the forehead. Wore their clothes in shoddy disarray, refused to wash, and looked as forlorn as possible. You cannot be spiritual unless you are uncomfortable in their view. They thought spirituality makes you do things that you do not want to do and keeps you from doing the things that you want to do. How many people have a view of spirituality like that today? Christianity is all about what you want to do but can't. Such as a disposition of an unregenerate heart that takes no true delight in the commandments of God, but only submits to them in an externalistic way with ulterior motives. Oh, brethren, we need to guard against that kind of thing. We need to guard our hearts and watch over our hearts zealously. Lesson, going through the motions of the Christian life. Daily prayer, spending time in the word of God, worshiping with the people of God. Lest these things become to us a mere mundane act and mundane acts of devotion that we do that we really don't want to do. Of course, there is a time and a place for when we feel rather averse in our affections or even in our health to spiritual duties. There is... You know, a place when self-denial enters in and cross-bearing really comes to bear. But that shouldn't be the ordinary disposition that we have toward the things of God. They should be our delight, our joy, the source of our strength and spiritual refreshment. Well, in their complaint, the Pharisees and disciples of John You see, they were trying to bind the conscience of Jesus to observe commandments that God had never commanded. They fasted twice a week. They were free to fast twice a week if that's what they wanted to do. But they had no authority to demand that Jesus and his disciples should do it. So let this too be a warning for us because as Christians... We can even be guilty of that today. When we impose our personal convictions and preferences on others, when there's no biblical warrant for those convictions or preferences, then we have no authority to do so. And we become guilty of this same sin that we see in the religiosity of this text. A sin, by the way, that even ensnared the disciples of John, the true prophet John. People do this with the church all the time. They want the church to conform to whatever their preferences are, and they make their preferences a rule which the church must either submit to or else they'll leave it or divide it with dissension over their scruples. Scribbles, by the way, which are often petty trifles in comparison to what Scripture really emphasizes as matters of importance. I I don't like the music in that place. They don't have enough children's ministries and programs and, and action going on. It's not dynamic enough. Personal preferences that have no express command in the word of God. Our faith, our worship, our practices must submit to the teachings of the word of God, neither omitting nor going beyond what it commands. We have no right to bind the practice of any church or bind the practice of any fellow believer beyond that which scripture commands. It's not right to make up our own laws, our own preferences, our own agendas, imposing them as some binding demand on others, because in doing so we intrude into the domain of God. John Calvin called this an evil arising out of fastidiousness and pride, when every man would willingly compel the whole world to copy his example. If anything pleases us, we forthright desire to make it a law that others may live according to our pleasure. He said, let us first learn not to place holiness in outward and indifferent matters, and at the same time to restrain ourselves by moderation and equity, that we may not desire to restrict others to what we approve, but may allow everyone to retain his freedom." This freedom of conscience, brethren, it's our blood-bought right as children of God. First Corinthians 7:23. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Elsewhere, Paul exhorted. Galatians 5:1. Stand fast, therefore. In the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled and entangled again with the yoke of bondage. We see this all the time. Somebody will be a very genuine and sincere believer, and they're walking with the Lord and they love the Lord, but all of a sudden they get in a scruple with another believer. And in addition to the Ten Commandments, they make up some other commandment that becomes the standard by which this other believer is accepted into their warm fellowship. And so in addition to you shall not lie and you shall not steal and you shall not kill comes commands like you shall not drink Mountain Dew. Such things can really destroy the unity of the church. The 1689 London Baptist Confession says in chapter 21, paragraph 2, God alone is the Lord of the conscience, and he has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it, so that to believe such doctrines, abstaining from meat during Lent, etc., etc., so that to believe such doctrines or obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith, an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and it's to destroy reason also. That's the reformed position on our liberty as blood bought children of God. Jesus refused to permit that his conscience would be bound with the commandments of the disciples of John and the Pharisees. Because if he did, then he would be ascribing to men an authority that belonged only to God and therefore sinning. And he refused to sin. There is a time and a place for fasting, Ecclesiastes 3.1 says, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. But that time was not then. These religious despots were blind to the time, this glorious privileged time in which they lived, a time that inaugurated the dawn of the messianic age, which was, in fact, this is our second point, a cause for celebration. It's a cause for celebration. We see this in verse 19. Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Well, this, of course, is an analogy drawn from the customs of the ancient Jewish wedding. When a man married a virgin, they celebrated for seven full days. It wasn't a wedding day. It was a wedding week. Jewish weddings were festive with praises, music, dancing, feasting, tons of eating and drinking, laughter, rejoicing, and much song. The friends of the bridegroom were his specially invited guests, And they had various tasks, but they had one main responsibility. You know what it was? Attend every day, eat and drink as much as they could with merriment of heart, and enjoy the festivities. That was their job. Fasting in the Old Testament, to the contrary, is associated with mourning, with affliction of soul with acts of penitence and other gestures of spiritual humiliation and repentance. That's why it was done on Yom Kippur. Leviticus 23.27 says of the Day of Atonement, it shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. That's a day when the high priest would enter the inner sanctum of the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the mercy seat with the blood seven times. It's a day of affliction, it says. David fasted when the words of the prophet Nathan pierced his soul, and he realized that his child was about to die, 2 Samuel 12. The Jews fasted in the book of Esther, when the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day. That was the plot of the wicked Haman. And it says, when Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth and ashes on his head and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Nineveh fasted when Jonah proclaimed that they would be destroyed. When Daniel interceded for the sin of Israel during their Babylonian captivity, he wrote, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. Daniel 9, 3 4. Mourning is for crises, it's for tragedies, even for funerals, but it's not for weddings. The words of Jesus even one up the Pharisees at their own game, because the rabbinic tradition that they themselves taught expressly forbade wedding guests to fast whenever they attended a wedding. There was a rabbinic rule against that. Now that the Messiah had come, it was Time to enjoy the messianic banquet, the union of God with his beloved people. It was time to rejoice over the presence of the bridegroom among men. Matthew and his tax-collecting friends got the point. They celebrated with feasting. Remember how we explained that the Greek text actually says that Jesus reclined at table. This wasn't an ordinary meal. They were reclining and banqueting and feasting and celebrating together. But the Pharisees stayed somber, grave, and gloomy. They accused Jesus of sinning for not following their traditions. But Jesus, by his words here, shows that they, in fact, were the ones sinning by failing to apply the word of God properly. And he uses his own, their own tradition to condemn them out of their own mouths. His divine wisdom was insurmountable. And he did it all with just two little sentences, a question and an answer. But his words display the glory of his wisdom in more ways than this. With a simple question and answer that he gives in verse 19, he draws inference from the rabbinic tradition to refute the Pharisees as he simultaneously draws from the words that John the Baptist said about him. This, of course, was meant to remind the disciples of John about what their rabbi taught. We read about this in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Before John was put in prison, it says, remember our text in Mark one fourteen said John was put in prison. So this was before he was put in prison. It says that there arose a dispute among some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John, the, the Baptist, and said to him, Rabbi... He who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Notice what he says. He Who has the bride is the bridegroom. That's all these followers that are going after Christ. They're the bride, he's the bridegroom. But John says, But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. That's what friends of the bridegroom had to do at weddings, they had to celebrate and rejoice. He says, therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Well, it couldn't be any clearer, could it? The disciples of John, they were jealous that more people were following Jesus than John. And John answers by humiliating himself and lifting up the Lord Jesus Christ, referring to himself as merely the friend of the bridegroom and Jesus as the husbandman of Israel. So here in Mark 2.19, with one simple analogy, Jesus condemns the Pharisees while tactfully rebuking the disciples of John for the sake of their own souls to win them over to faith. He's saying, in essence, you're not believing what your prophet, your rabbi, John, said about me. But the wisdom of his words goes even further. For out of this analogy drawn from John, who, again, everybody recognized as a prophet, even the Pharisees feared saying that John was not a prophet. They said, Jesus is a devil. He's got Beelzebub. He casts out demons by the power of the devil. But they dared not say that about John the Baptist. Everybody recognized he was a prophet. And so, out of this analogy... Drawn from John the Baptist, Jesus evokes a testimony concerning not only his messianic identity, but his divine identity. In the Old Testament, the Messiah is never expressly referred to as the bridegroom, but God often is. God often is. Isaiah 54 5 says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, is his name. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. Couldn't be clearer. Isaiah 62 5 says, And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Similar descriptions can be found in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Zephaniah, not to mention this reality being so experientially and beautifully depicted in the Song of Solomon. And according to the prophets, the consummation of the covenantal union and intimacy between God and his people would come with the age of Messiah. Hence, as the elect of Israel were the bride of God, so the church is the bride of Christ. Well, then in the next verse, Jesus gives the first prophecy in the Gospel of Mark concerning his Death on the cross. Look at verse 20. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. In an ordinary wedding, when the events would come to an end, the guests would depart of their own accord to allow the groom and the bride to enjoy life together. But Jesus' words indicate that the bridegroom would be abruptly Taken away. He'd be taken away. The verb he uses is in the passive voice. He wouldn't just go away, he would be taken away. Indicating that he would be removed, he would be carried off, he would be taken out of the picture through the will of others. And of course, he submitted to that with his own will, to the will of the Father but it was also by the will of wicked men who would come to take him away and lead him to his death. Specifically, he is implying that this would be done by the authorities, because who else would show up at a wedding to carry off a bridegroom? Who else would be able to do that other than the authorities? And so this is a prophecy about how the authorities will put him to death. As Isaiah said, he was cut off from the land of the living. He says, then they will fast in those days. Verse 20. So Jesus doesn't abolish fasting, but he says it has its own time, its own season, its own occasion, wherein it is fitting. Some teachers have claimed that fasting was a distinctively old covenant practice and that it should no longer be observed by believers under the New Covenant. But that's not right. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus, when he gave instruction concerning fasting on the Sermon on the Mount, he is there teaching the ethics of the kingdom of God for his church. In Acts 13.2, it says that the leaders of the church of Antioch, ministered to the Lord and fasted. And as they did, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The Holy Spirit spoke while they fasted. Then it says in verse 3, Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away out into the ministry of apostleship. Then in Acts 14.23, when Paul and Barnabas had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And in 1 Corinthians seven five, Paul gives instructions to husbands and wives about giving themselves to fasting and prayer. Thus, fasting continues as a spiritual discipline for New Covenant saints. It is subordinate to prayer. It's meant to intensify our focus and our resolve in prayer and to free up more time for prayer. Fasting in itself is of no benefit. Paul, in Colossians 2.23, denounces the neglect of the body, he says, that is of no value against the indulgence of the flesh, speaking of sinful passions. You can starve yourself to death and it's not going to root out any indwelling sin. Mere asceticism is of no spiritual profit. But fasting with the right motives and with the right ends in view as you devote yourself to prayer, to scripture meditation, to spiritual exercises, to works of mercy, as Isaiah says, that's of great benefit to the soul. It's a spiritual discipline that Sadly, it is much neglected in our day, but was practiced often in past generations. Our negligence in these spiritual duties, I fear, is a sad testimony to the low ebb of our spirituality in comparison with that of the ancients. Nonetheless, what is of most importance, utmost importance, in fact, is faith in Jesus Christ. Hence, we have in the last place a call to reformation, a call to reformation. This call is made by our Lord in two parables or analogies that he gives in verses 21 to 22. He says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment or else the new pulls, the new piece pulls away from the old and the terror is made worse. Well, if a new cloth is sewed onto an old garment, then when it's washed, the new patch will shrink, and because it's stitched to the old, already shrunken cloth, it will rip and cause a bigger hole, and so it'll ruin both the patch and the garment. The whole thing will be ruined, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins, he says, or Also, new wine bursts the wineskins, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. New wine must be put in new wineskins, or else you'll ruin both. Well, in those days, wine was often fermented in wineskins made of goat leather. When the leather was new, it was elastic, malleable, so it could expand without bursting. And so as the wine that was contained within it it would be sealed, as it fermented in the leather sack, it would produce gas and pressure that expanded and put outward stress on that leather sack. The new leather could handle it because it was fresh. But old leather sacks were worn and dry and sometimes cracked. They were more brittle. And so when new wine was fermented in them, the pressure would expand such that it would burst the sack, destroying the sack and spilling the wine that was in it. And so what's our Lord getting at in these parables? He's saying that there's a much deeper issue here than just fasting. They're concerned over fasting. They're concerned over these external observances of their human traditions that they append to the law of God and trying to bind his conscience with. But he says there's a much deeper reality going on, a much deeper spiritual issue that you guys, he says, are completely missing. He's saying, I didn't come to patch up old decadent Judaism. I came to usher in the fullness of redemptive blessings, drawing from this symbology of wine from the prophets, which is associated with the joy of the kingdom of God. He's saying, I came to introduce the age of fulfillment. I came to bring a new kingdom and a new covenant. The disciples of John had only reformed halfway. They heeded the teaching of John, but they're still arguing about purification and fasting and things like this. It's like they were still stuck in the old covenant, refusing to drink the new wine of the Messianic age. Jesus said in another place, no one having tasted new wine says it is better. He says the old wine is better. That was the same problem with the Judaizers, That Paul is battling in a number of his epistles. They were stuck. They were stuck in the old covenant. Jesus is saying. You must reform all the way. If you only go halfway. If you try to fit the son of God. Within the structures of the old covenant. You will destroy the true teaching of both. How many people try to do something similar today. They hear the word of God, they come under the influence of the gospel, their conscience is stirred up, and so they try to commend themselves to God by behaving better. They try to reform their lives. They try to live more righteously. They try to patch up the old man that's already fallen and broken and devastated in sin. The patches of your own self-concocted morality can never suffice to give you what you need because what you need is a new creation, a new wineskin, You need to be born again. You need to be transformed by the grace of God. You need to be changed from the inside out. You need a radical, revolutionary reformation wrought from the depths of your heart out into all your affections and all your thoughts and all your actions by the power of the Holy Ghost. That's what you need. But there's a question that arises here, is there not? Is Jesus referring to the Old Covenant itself, or is he referring to the extra biblical rabbinic traditions of the Pharisees? What's the old wineskin? The Old Covenant, or all these traditions of the Pharisees? I think it's a combination of both. There was an obsolete principle inherent within the Old Covenant. Itself, The old covenant was never intended to be eternal. It was a temporary covenant that was given for a temporary purpose until the promised seed should come. It was a pedagogue meant to lead Israel to Christ, a schoolmaster, a guide, a teacher. That's what it was. And embedded within it was this inherent obsolete principle. Once full redemption would be made, once full satisfaction for sin would be made, once the blood of the Son of God would be shed, then that old system would be rendered obsolete. Because it was anticipatory in nature. It was promissory. It's characterized by promise. And so how do we understand the relationship between the Old and the New Testaments? This is an important question. What's the nature of this relationship? Well, let me just give you seven keys to understanding the relationship. Number one, there is a unity between the Old and the New Testaments with regard to God's purpose, God's gospel, God's grace. And God's people. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 11 when he says, There's one olive tree. He says, Gentiles, don't boast against the olive tree, don't boast against the Jews. Jews boast against Gentiles. Gentiles, don't you boast against the Jews because you are a foreign branch that is grafted into the trunk and root of the Abrahamic olive tree. There's one people of God. Christ has broken down the middle wall of partition that divided Jews and Gentiles and has made out of those two peoples one new body in Christ. There's one people of God. Of God. There's one elect throughout the Testaments and one covenant of grace. The covenant of grace was promised in the Old Covenant. The covenant of grace is ratified and fulfilled in the New Covenant. But there's one covenant of grace by which anybody who was ever saved was ever saved. Number two, the Bible teaches that there is also a fundamental similarity. When it comes to the spiritual experience of the people of God in both Testaments. Old Testament saints were justified by faith. They were born of the spirit of God. They were adopted as children of God they experience the salvation blessings that we enjoy the redemptive historical basis for those blessings had not yet been established but because Christ didn't yet die but God passed over the sins that were formerly committed to lay them on Christ in order to retrospectively or retroactively as it were make the old covenant saints partakers and 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 those who experience the benefits of these of these glorious salvation realities. And so when Paul teaches about justification by faith, who does he appeal to? Abraham and David. Well, three, the Bible teaches a fundamental continuity of ethical norms as well. Uh, God and his unchanging justice and man as his image bearer, that relationship means that there is an unchanging moral nature to that relationship And that's codified in the moral law of God summarized in the Ten Commandments. And so the whole Old Testament still contains moral principles and still contains ethical and theological principles which are instructive and needful for us as believers today. But number four, the Bible teaches the ongoing authority and inspiration of the Old Testament as well, which includes its profitability 2nd Timothy three sixteen. all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable well what was the scripture that Paul was referring to it was the scrolls Timothy when you come to me bring the scrolls these were Old Testament scrolls all scripture referring to the Old Testament including it is inspired and profitable it's still the revelation of God number five The Bible also teaches, however, that there is a radical change in the constitution and worship of the people of God. No longer are the people of God theocratically organized according to the Mosaic Covenant, but now they are kingdom organized according to the Messianic Kingdom. John four twenty one to 23, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, woman, believe me. She asked him, where should we worship? On this mountain, in Jerusalem, and, and some other place? He says, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. But the hour is coming and now is. Now is. That's one of those eschatological nows. Now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. And so the boundaries of Old Testament strictures that regulated worship with all these ordinances and with all this geopolitical centeredness around the establishment of the temple, the seams of all that wineskin have been burst. Number six, the Bible teaches that ceremonial and civil laws are abolished and that their meaning, their significance, and what they pointed to is all fulfilled in Christ. That's what Paul says, Ephesians 2, Christ abolished in his flesh the enmity between Jew and Gentile, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances ceremonial laws God reconciled Jews and Gentiles in one body through the cross thereby putting to death the enmity he says and so as Peter has that vision in the book of the Acts Peter don't call anything unclean there is a radical shift and number seven the Bible teaches that the New covenant replaces the old covenant. Hebrews 8.13, and that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. And he says, now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And the author to the Hebrews writing as I take him to be before 70 AD is thereby giving a prophecy about the coming destruction of the temple. It's ready to vanish away. All this priesthood, all this Levitical sacrificial system that he's talking about in the book of Hebrews, it's ready to vanish away. It's already waxed old, but it's about to be taken out by the judgment of God. 2 Corinthians 3.10-11 says, For even what was made glorious, speaking of the old covenant, had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For what is passing away was glorious, but what remains is much more glorious, he says. And so it's like holding a candle up to the bright light of the sun. Old covenant and new covenant. And the fundamental trait of new covenant Christianity our Lord is teaching in this analogy is joy and enjoyment in the realization of salvation. We enjoy in Christ freedom from the burden of guilt, freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law, freedom from the dominance and influential control of sin, freedom from the tyranny of the devil, freedom to serve God in the spirit as free-born children of the king. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Remember Jesus said, I'm going away but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then he says, the comforter is coming to you. He comes through the spirit of Christ. And so, yes, he was taken away in the interval between his death and his resurrection. Yes, that was a time of mourning for his disciples. Yes, when he appears in his resurrected state, he gives them bread and fish. He breaks bread and he says, take and eat. Why? they were probably fasting. But then he sends the Spirit, and with the Spirit, there is liberty. With the Spirit, there is this freedom. With the Spirit, there is now, by virtue of his grace, something within us, a vital Christian, religious, spiritual experience. Whereby we are supernaturally made to know the communications of the ineffable joy of the spirit to our hearts. So that even when we grieve and when we sorrow, as Paul says to the Thessalonians, we do not grieve as the world grieves. We have freedom. But you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Well, the question posed by this image of the wedding feast and these two parables is not whether the disciples will, like sewing a patch on an old garment or refilling an old container. It's not if they will make room for Jesus in their already full agendas and lives. It's not whether they will tap him on in addition to their own agendas and lives. But the question is whether they will forsake business as usual and join the wedding celebration, whether they will become entirely new receptacles for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in their lives, as one scholar states. Our greatest reformation, brethren, yes, it's taking place, Yes, as the new wine is poured into our being and the influence of its fermentation, the influence of the spirit is working on the totality of our humanity, we are increasing in grace. But our greatest reformation will occur at our future transformation when Christ brings the messianic age to its climax in the eternal state when we enjoy the wedding supper of the Lamb, when we drink of the wine of the cup of his blood, anew with him in his kingdom. Ephesians 5 says that Christ loved us. He loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with a washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. What great joy and rejoicing there will be on that day when before the presence of the Lamb and his holy angels we are set free from sin once and for all. No more pestering and dwelling sin, molesting our consciences and dragging us down. No more garments of heaviness, no more grieving, no more losses, no more crying, no more tears but perpetual waves and oceans of divine love and joy rolling over our souls, saturating our affections, and effusing us beyond what words can describe with a fullness of glorious reality that we can't even now imagine. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, help us to keep this hope before our eyes. O Lord, help us to be vessels for your honor as new creatures filled with your spirit, Lord. Help us to rejoice. Help us in the midst of all our pains and sorrows, Lord, not to be overwhelmed with them, but to know the fruit of the spirit in our lives, which is joy. Help us not to place our religion in external things, for we know the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking or refraining from food and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Let us know that reality in its fullness. In Christ's name, amen.